the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, maybe stuff you heard in church, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app, and as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to finish Joel chapter 2. It begins in verse 28. Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, this is where Joel 3 begins. And then there's uh, the rest of chapter 3. But, but this is chapter 2 in our Bibles. And it's verses 28 through 32, and it's very contemporary. I'm really excited about the study. And, of course, tomorrow Paula will be live in studio with us on the Date Day edition of the program. And we would love to have you join us via your phone calls and hear what Paula has to say. Let's get to some questions while we wait for your phone calls. Our first question comes from Jeremy from our email inbox. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. I hope all is well. I don't want to sound legalistic, but are Christians supposed, and you've got quotes around supposed, supposed to have financial savings, CDs, or investing in stocks and bonds? I do have life insurance for my family in case I died. My wife and four children are taken care of. However, another Christian encouraged me to invest in stocks and bonds. Personally, I don't I have much in savings. I give an abundance to my church. My Christian friend says he gives to the church also, but he invests a lot of his money in stocks and bonds and his educational money for his kids. He makes more money than I do. He can do extra things like this. He made a good argument about the future. Do you partake, meaning me, Pastor Ron, do I partake uh, in any investing or savings? What are your thoughts about savings or investing. Um, Jeremy, a couple of things, and let me get the personal part out of it first. I don't have any money to invest. <laughs> you know, I, I before I got saved, my whole life was about money and about security and about having more than anybody else, and I was the most miserable human being in the world. And right now, my future, my retirement is is really up to Jesus. I'm going to keep working until he tells me I can't anymore. And um, I'm really not interested in the things this world has. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad to invest in stocks or invest in bonds. They're risky, especially stock market investing. Um, People are now doing it online. And I know people that have made some money, but I know a whole bunch more people that have lost some money. So I think we just need to be really, really careful. I think the key, Jeremy, 
in all of this. And this is a cue for all of you in this audience. I think the real key is asking Jesus what he wants you to do. Your friend may have a gift for investing. Um, the, the Lord may have spoken directly to your friend about this is what he wants him to do, to provide for his children's future, those kinds of things. Um, but we need to do what God tells us to do. And you say you give an abundance to your church. God bless you for that. There's rewards in heaven. That is a, a retirement program that, that the world can't match. So do what you feel like doing. And these are probably conversations that we ought to have only with the Lord. We don't need to have these kind of conversations with other believers. Too often people are trying to cram their opinions down our throats. And in some cases, there are people trying to sell stocks and bonds. Um, so just this is just between you and the Lord. And if we let Jesus tell us what to do, we need to remember that the money we have is his. It's not ours. It's his. And if we'll do what he tells us to do with it, then we're going to be on pretty solid ground and our obedience will be rewarded. But um, don't let somebody else's convictions convince you. Just let the Spirit of God convince you. Now, let me take a minute because you wrote it so well in the beginning of your letter, Jeremy. Uh, you said, uh, I do have life insurance for my family in case I died. Your wife and four children are taken care of. This is really, really a critical issue. Um, everybody, every every husband, every father, um, and, and in min- most cases, working uh, wives and moms as well, um, they need to have life insurance. Um, you know, I've got life insurance uh, where Paul is the beneficiary. I've also got a portion of my life insurance where the church, Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, is the beneficiary. I want to be sure that Paul is taken care of. It's my responsibility while I'm here on this world to do that. And it is bad stewardship if there's anyone in this listening audience who does not provide life insurance and that security should something happen to you with wives and children, uh, for them to be left as a pastor. I've, I've had um, shamefully more uh, situations than I ever would have imagined where uh, wives were left with all the bills. They were left with the mess financially that had been made, but they weren't left with the means to deal with it. They weren't left with life insurance. And, and, and that is really, really bad stewardship. So we're, we're the, to take care of our families, we're to make sure that that uh, if we die, they can move forward, um, and uh, life insurance is the way to do that. And take it from a guy who's getting old. Um, the time to deal with life insurance is while you're young and while you're healthy. So um, um, please, please, please don't leave your family without the coverage of life insurance uh, that's important. Really, really, really good question. Thank you, Jeremy, for the opportunity to mention about life insurance. Here is a question. This one is from Danny. He says, will you please explain the fivefold ministry? Yeah, Danny, the fivefold ministry is really not the fivefold ministry, at least at least in the way uh, that uh, churches that advertise them as being fivefold ministry churches uh, understand. Uh, it's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Here's the fivefold ministry as they see it. Remember, it's only four, but I'll talk about that in a moment. It says, It was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Now, the pastors and teachers, um, uh, Danny, is the same thing. So uh, it's one office, and so what Paul is describing here, uh, the gift that Jesus gave to the church is a fourfold ministry, not five. The fivefold ministry churches that advertise themselves as such, um, you know, what they're saying is, look, we have apostles and we have prophets, and of course we know there are no apostles and prophets today. Um, Evangelists and pastor teachers are gifts still given to the church. Now, couple of things. Now remember, Jesus gave these gifts to the church to help us live lives worthy of our calling. He never leaves us without means of accomplishing the work that he has for us. I love this verse 
because it's not often that I get to be called a gift from God to anyone. But as a pastor, I'm God's gift to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I hope they enjoy it. I hope they benefit from it. But but I am God's gift, and he gives me uh, not only the spiritual gifts, but the power in those spiritual gifts to do what he's called me to do so that I can be a blessing to the church. Now, the churches out there who claim to have the fivefold ministry of the Spirit working in their church are often um, um, overly charismatic churches or Pentecostal churches and out-of-control churches, uh, but, and they use this passage to validate their claims to be a fivefold ministry. Um, but remember, it was Jesus who gave these gifts to the church. Man cannot claim these gifts for himself. So apostles, there are no more, like there were in the book of Acts. There are no more prophets, like there were in the Old Testament, or like there were in in the early church. They were gifts given by God, part of the foundation given to the church. So it's very important that we understand these gifts uh, correctly. Um, Paul sets out only two um, as foundational apostles and prophets. And these are gifts uh, that that have been given to the church but no longer exist. So we could talk about each of the gifts or each of the offices, but I don't think that's necessary to do here. So, Danny, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Uh, Tony with an I. So this is a female Tony. She said... Uh, is it okay to stop visiting my relatives because they smoke marijuana at every gathering? Tony, the answer is yes, absolutely. You can't be a part of that. It's just simple. You know, I would tell my relatives, family members, moms, dads, brothers, sisters, whoever they are, if they want to see you, then there can't be drugs there. And what a great opportunity, Tony, for you to witness to your family. You just say, look, I'm a Christian. I don't go where there are drugs, and especially if those drugs are being used. So I choose Jesus over spending time with you while you're doing those things that are not commended by the Lord. So yes, by all means, just be honest and tell them. Again, it's your opportunity to witness, uh, to take a stand for Jesus Christ, but uh, just to say, look, we're not coming over anymore. If there's going to be marijuana, if there's going to be drugs, if you're going to be drinking alcohol, I'm just not coming. So I would not do that. Um, and and uh, I think you have every right to do that. I think it would be a decision that would please the Lord, especially Tony. You don't say whether you have kids or not, but to have children around that kind of environment is simply bad parenting. It's that simple. It's bad parenting. Christians cannot smoke marijuana. Now, people out there say, but but they do, yeah, but they shouldn't. They're in disobedience. They're in rebellion against God, and we're supposed to speak to them, warn them once, then twice, uh, if necessary, take other people with us. But after we've warned them, this is for professing Christians, after we've warned them and they refuse to repent, then we're to have nothing whatsoever to do with them. So, Tony, good for you. Uh, it's time somebody takes a stand in this idea that marijuana is um, really didn't hurt anybody and everybody does it. Uh, it's just absolutely nonsense, and the, the Bible knows nothing of that at all. Timothy says, Pastor Ron, what was the reason Jesus suffered so much on the cross instead of dying quickly? Was there something about the pain that made him worthy? Timothy, um, Jesus was, is worthy, so he didn't have to be made worthy. But in suffering, um, Jesus was demonstrating for people like you and me um, how to deal with pain and suffering in this world. Obviously, God knew that that the world had pain and suffering in it, and there would be more pain and suffering in the future. We're told by James, uh, when we suffer many kinds of trials or, 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 or episodes of pain, we, we shouldn't be caught off guard. We shouldn't look at it like, wow, I'm shocked. Something like this is happening. And, uh, instead, we should be prepared for it. So, again, Jesus was worthy. He was worthy because he lived a perfect, sinless life. Um, but he had 
to take the wrath of God in your place, Timothy, and in mine. And he had to do that because God's perfect justice has to be satisfied. You know, we talk a lot about God is love, and it's appropriate that we do. It's true, God is love. But we need to remember that even above love, God is holy. Holiness is God's overarching characteristic. And because he's holy, he has to be just. And that means sin had to be punished. God loved you so much, Timothy, and he loved me so much that Jesus volunteered to take the suffering your sin and mine deserved. And so... um, Yes, he, he, he was identifying with sinful man. Um, he told us before he got to the cross that they hated him, and because they hated him, they're going to hate us. They insulted him, they're going to insult us. Uh, the Apostle Paul was hunted down and chased out. There were constant death threats. He said there were many days where he despaired even of life, surviving the day alive. Um, and, and Jesus suffered so that we can understand. God could have just had him die. I mean, he could have died. It would have been, we could have released his spirit at any given time. But he suffered. He suffered. The punishment that brought us peace, Isaiah 53 says, was placed upon him. So he suffered. And that suffering teaches us how to deal with our own suffering. So, Timothy, good question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, Ronald says, uh, I know I'm in God's will, but I sometimes doubt it when things are hard. Can you help me? Uh, Ronald, a couple of things. I think every one of us doubts it when things are hard or when things don't turn out like we expect. I was sharing just this week with somebody asking some questions about our history here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. And Paul and I, we knew, we absolutely knew we were in God's will. But we also looked at the circumstances around our lives and nothing, nothing went the way we thought it would. Everything was hard. Everything was challenged. And, you know, while the Bible doesn't teach this, it's true that in in our minds, you know, we have certain expectations. Well, if I say yes to God, then this everything is going to go well. Or if I say yes to God, then this is going to be the result. And we have no right to make those assumptions. So when you say you know you're in God's will, that's the place to rest, Ronald. Rest there. And when the doubt comes creeping in or comes flooding in, just because things get hard, then look at the Lord. I was just this week, Ronald, reading Psalm 30. I'm, I'm, I'm currently, my morning reading is in the Psalms now, which for me is a little unusual. I'm not a Psalms guy necessarily. I don't, I don't camp out in the Psalms. But I was reading Psalms 30, and I was reminded of just how good God was and how faithful he is. So what what we do is, in the middle of God's will, we just know that his grace is sufficient. That's what uh, the Apostle Paul was told when three times he begged the Lord to take the thorn in the flesh from him. Three times the Lord said no, and finally he said, my grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is available to all of us when things get really, really hard. What we have to do, Ronald, is have the faith to avail ourselves of the peace of God uh, when when we're in the will of God. That's all we have to do. Things are hard. Things are difficult. But Jesus, I know you got me. I know you got me. That's why Jesus could go obediently to the cross. He didn't really go willingly. Now, he wanted to please his Father. But he went obediently to the cross. The same thing is true for you and for me. And then when we look back on a lot of those difficult times, those those really tough trials, we look back and we can see that those trials were engineered by the Lord himself. Very, very important, Ronald. When you're in God's will, then you're God's problem. I I always am reminding me. I say it out loud like I'm because I'm talking to Jesus, but but he already knows it. But but to remind me, Lord, I'm doing exactly what you want me to do. I'm right in the middle of your will. 
So guess what, Jesus, now I'm your problem. I'm just going to sit back, follow you, and then we'll see what happens as we work through this trial together. And on the other side of those trials, Ronald, your intimacy with the Lord, your Christ-likeness has increased so, so wonderfully that you look back and you actually can thank God for the trial. Now, we can't thank God. We don't thank God for the trial that we're in right now. That would be a little bit silly. But what we can do is we can thank God that he's with us in the trial and in the suffering. So, Ronald, I hope that helps you. I really do. Let's go to uh, our friend Ruben from Seguin on line one. Ruben, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you doing, sir? Ruben, I'm doing well. Good to hear from you. Uh, I just wanted to share something with, with someone, with everyone, if I may. Um, if they don't read the Bible, uh, here's yet another reason why you should read the Bible. Um not to, not to say, woo woo, look at me, look what I've done. But over the past ten years, I read the Bible about five five times from Good Genesis to from Genesis. And you know, I'm not I'm not saying it to like lift up my collar or anything, but I missed this scripture in John seventeen, mm-hmm. verse nine. And uh, when I read it, it literally gave me chills. It was before he was going to be taken. And the whole, actually, that whole chapter, if if anybody wants to read it, I would invite them to read it and just ask God to open their spiritual eyes and to just let, let it soak in what he's saying. Everything he says is important. But when he gets to verse 9, oh, man, he says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those who have given who have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. And if I'm not mistaken, he's talking about his disciples, and then everyone that he saved up to this point, because the whole point of him being here was because to save yeah. the world. And I was thinking about this, man, this must have been, if I'm not mistaken, two days before he was taken, maybe maybe three, and he prayed for the, like, the whole world. The whole world. And he was like, you know what? I, was, I still don't want the glory. You guys <laughs> still don't understand. It's not about me. I don't want the glory. I don't even want to do this. But, but he did it anyways. Yeah. And I just, I mean, it's it's a small little opinion of mine, but I just, to me, it spoke volumes, and I just wanted to share with that somebody today. Hopefully, it lifted up your day, knowing that Jesus did this before he he was even crucified. That he prayed for everybody, even before he was crucified, which I just thought was, yep, you know. The bomb. So, yeah, yeah. Ruben, thank you. That was golden. I appreciate it very, very much. You know, Hebrews 7 says he ever lives to make intercession for us. That's now at the right hand of God. But he ever lives. He always lived to make intercession for us. And in John 17, I, I always say that's the holiest ground in the New Testament because we, we are literally eavesdropping in on a private conversation between uh, the Father and the Son. Uh, at, at this time, the next day, he is going to die. So uh, as they, they're in the upper room, uh, this is just before they leave to go into the Garden of Gethsemane, and um, um, not only does he say that, that uh, uh, he hasn't lost any that, that the Father has given him, but he, he prays for them, his disciples, but then he also says that I pray not only for them, but I believe for those who are going to believe through their message. And the message, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means he's also praying down the corridor of time and space for you, Reuben, and for me. And um, we, we need to remind ourselves. Psalm, Psalm 30 that I mentioned a moment ago is a reminder to think about the times that God has shown off for you. Um, that that uh, John chapter 17 um, holy prayer is, is Jesus saying um, not only... Is he praying for us? But remarkably, Reuben, 
in that passage of Scripture, Jesus says, Father, you have loved them just as you have loved me. And for those in the audience out there who sometimes wonder, well, if God loved me, why is this happening? Think about that. He loves you. He's made that commitment. He loves you. The Father does the same way, with the same measure that he loved his Son. And that is a staggering, staggering thought. And um, uh, Reuben, that is precisely one of the reasons that we should be worshiping the Lord. We should remember his goodness to us when Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 talk about the things that we ought to think on, especially when we're going through difficult times. And Philippians chapter 4 deals with the suffering that Paul was going through. Those are the kind of things that we can think about. So, yeah, that's that's the holiest ground in my perspective in our New Testament. And it's almost at times I feel sheepishly embarrassed that I'm listening in on that, that prayer. Um, um, that's what it feels like to be on holy ground. Reuben, thank you for that. God bless you. And you were just used by the Lord to encourage a bunch of people today. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show. A reminder, Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow, and that's our favorite and most listened to program of the week. I keep telling Paula she ought to just have her own show and I could get off the air. But she says, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. But she will be here tomorrow, and we look forward to uh, our interaction with you. Uh, Here is a question from our email inbox anonymously. Uh, Hello, quick question. Uh, I have a friend who is in a rut, and every time I see her lately, it turns out, I'm sorry, it turns into her complaining about her husband. Sometimes I try to encourage her to seek counseling and to seek the Lord about it. But sometimes I end up agreeing with her to try and make her feel better and even complain about minor things about my husband. That's a no-no more than that in the moment. She's a new friend who I know loves Jesus. I want to be a good friend, but I don't like where our conversations have been going. I'm afraid if I'm blunt with her, she might get her feelings hurt and might damage the relationship. Anonymous, this is where you have to decide whether or not you're really going to be a friend. And sometimes to be a friend, you have to risk a friendship. But there's another opportunity for you to really trust the Holy Spirit. Now, two things. Ladies, you should never complain about your husband. You're one flesh. If you're complaining about your husband, you're complaining about yourself. Now, I realize there are problems. I realize sometimes we men are jerks. I get it. But how can we speak ill of somebody that we've promised God to cherish? So it's really important and that she is in a rut is a very dangerous place for her to be anonymous because this is where the enemy can pound and really, really pound. So here's what you do as a friend. As a friend, you be honest with her and say, you know, sometimes because I have sympathy for you, maybe empathy is even a better word, I I end up agreeing with you about your complaining, what you're complaining with your husband. And then I even complain about my, my husband. And that's a sin. I'm not going to do it anymore. So please, I love you. I cherish our friendship. I, I want to nurture this friendship. But I cannot listen to your complaining about your husband. If you want to fix it, let's pray for him. And let's pray for your marriage together. But don't speak ill of the man that you've promised God you would love and cherish. It's that simple. And that's really being a friend. So 
here's what you just ex- explained to her. You love Jesus. I know you do. But this is a sin. And so I can't be a party to that. What I want to be is a friend who can encourage you, a friend who can be blessed by our relationship. But I can't any longer be a friend who listens to you complain about your husband. And she may get angry, but here's where you pray for her and you count on the Holy Spirit to convict her heart of this thing. And as long as people are complaining about stuff, things don't get any better. There is one person, anonymous, one person that we can complain to. Just one. And that's Jesus. And Jesus will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will can be, if we complain, if I were to go out and complain about Paula, um, now, Paul, if you, I know you're listening, so I, I never complained about you. God taught me a long time ago not to. But if I were to complain about Paula, the Lord would, would remind me, wait a minute, didn't she pray for you for 13 years? Hasn't she demonstrated that she loves you? Yeah, I know. Then pray for her. And God will always take what I'm tempted to complain about and turn it around and, and have me examining my own heart. And then we can talk, the Lord and I, how can I be a source of encouragement? How can I help her in this area? And and that's the way a husband and wife ought to work. But never, ever, ever complain about your husband, men, or about your wives. Don't let your guard down. The enemy is like a roaring lion. Uh, sneaking around, looking for opportunities to devour. And when we um, start complaining and grumbling, especially about people that Jesus loves, we start complaining about them, then he's going to pounce, the devil. So just don't get caught up in it. You've already experienced a little tiny bit of how listening to her complaining can cause you to begin complaining, um, and you just don't want to do that. So very, very important. Talk to Jesus about it. He is a friend who's closer than a brother. Paula calls him her uh, her first husband. And so he's the one who listened. He gets you, and he'll turn it around to help you help your husband in this case and and that's the the answer otherwise you just end up getting more and more bitter and we give the devil a foothold um i don't want to give the devil any help in trying to destroy me so be very careful but be bold be loving but be direct and let her know that because of her complaining about her husband this is what's or how it's affecting you. I've even found myself complaining about my husband, and I love him to death. Uh, he is my best friend, and um, I, 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 that's sin on my part. And it would be sin for me to listen any longer to you complaining about your husband. So let's be friends. Let's keep Jesus at the center of it. And um, we're going to find out that the power of the Holy Spirit is real. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very, very much for the question. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. That's 5757. Debbie asks this question, Why didn't Adam and Eve know they were naked before they sinned? It should have been obvious. Um, Debbie, it's impossible for us to understand the unfallen world. I think what happened um, when Adam and Eve sinned is that the glory of God, the Shekinah of God, departed from them. And the glory of God hid their nakedness in a in a shameful sense. There's nothing shameful about our, our naked human bodies. That's not the point. But they didn't realize they were naked. They didn't realize that they were without cover because they knew nothing but good. And now, having sinned against God, they knew both good and evil and that which God made beautiful, their bodies, suddenly they realized they were naked. And and again, you might think it should be obvious. They know they don't have any clothing on. Um, but they were clothed in the glory of God, the Shekinah of God. And they didn't know any other way. 
So uh, that's why they didn't know they were naked before they sinned. Thank you, Debbie. Edward says, uh, can you tell me what it means to carry our cross daily in a practical sense? Edward, I, I, I think so. I mean, the most practical thing in the world is every day to die to yourself. Now remember, to carry our cross, the cross in the ancient world in Jesus' day was an instrument of death, an instrument of execution. So what we're told, Jesus said, to be my disciple, you must pick up your cross. Luke adds the word daily. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. So what it means practically is you get up every day and you say, Lord, today I choose to live for you and not for me. I'm going to crucify my desires. I'm going to crucify my plans, my hopes, and my dreams. And instead, I'm going to pick up my cross and I'm going to follow you. And then you simply walk in the will of God. So that's what it means to carry a cross. Say yes to to Jesus means you have to first say no to yourself. I have a good friend, and I've shared this before in the program, but uh, Damien Kyle, he's a pastor in Modesto, California. He's one of those pastors. It's really funny without trying to be. You know, he's he's not a funny man, not not a comedian. He doesn't tell stories. He's just funny because he he's just so different. But he said one day at a pastor's conference, he said, you know, I get up every morning and I struggle to the mirror and I look in the mirror as close as I can and I say, no. And I think I, that just, I've always, that's cracked me up always because that really is what we need to do. We need to say no to us, our flesh, our desires, and to the things of this world. And then and only then, Edward, can we say yes to Jesus. So that's what it means. Carry your cross. Jesus, I'm going to die. I'm going to keep dying all day long so that I can really live. And that's all it means, putting his needs, his priorities ahead of your own. That's what it means, Edward, to die to our flesh. Uh, Speaking of flesh, Angel, no, I'm sorry, Angela says, will you describe what a carnal Christian is? Um, Angel, read 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter written to carnal Christians. Now, the word carnal, obviously, um, comes from the root that means meat or flesh. Uh, And it's a Christian who uh, is dominated by his or her flesh rather than by the Spirit of God. And when you're dominated by your flesh, you're going to do what your flesh wants. You're going to do things that you know you ought not to do. uh, And you do them anyway because... You're unwilling to put Jesus ahead of your flesh. Now, people say, well, there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. Those people aren't really saved. If you believe that, you've got a real problem with 1 Corinthians because Paul, describing the carnality of the Corinthians, uh, he calls them brothers over and over and over again. And the reason he's writing is to correct their carnality. So a carnal Christian is somebody... Uh, who uh, gets more involved in the things of this world than in the things of God. A carnal Christian, let me just describe, Angela, kind of the behavior. We have a lot of people, and I'm, I'm talking, I've known real Christian. Um, we've had a couple of people in our church have been here for, for or, or not been here, but, but have been Christians for a long time. And they were living together and even had kids. And when we found out, we had to talk to him, and the Spirit of God began to convict him. And, and that's just carnality. Well, why do I need a, a piece of paper? We, we can love each other. We committed ourselves to God. No, you need to obey the law. You need to be married legally. And, and so they did, and, um, and, and of course, God is abundantly blessed as a result. A carnal Christian is somebody who would go out and say, well, you know, I can drink a little bit. It's no big deal. And and uh, if I occasionally get drunk or I occasionally party, what's the big deal? That's carnality. So a carnal Christian is somebody who is not doing what God wants them to do characteristically, but instead is doing what they want to do or what the world has influenced them to do instead of being obedient to Jesus Christ. So carnal Christians, they're never sure of their salvation. Um, Carnal Christians um, never have the peace of God. Uh, The the sin that they're involved in separates them from the presence of God. Uh, But the the reality 
is there are people who are carnal, sometimes hard to be able to see uh, anything that would identify them as a Christian at all in their lives, uh, but they're really saved. Now, let me say also this. For the carnal Christian who persists in carnality, um, God is going to make that person miserable, just miserable. God that loves you so much, he's got such a great plan for your life, and he loves you so much, he wants you to enjoy being right in the middle of that plan. And for carnal Christians who refuse to surrender to the will of God, God is going to tighten the screws on them over and over and over. So um, that's what we've got to understand. Carnality means separation from Jesus relationally, not necessarily in terms of salvation. But there are a lot of people who say they're Christians who are living carnal lives who aren't born again. That's between them and the Lord. Thank you for that. Here's an anonymous question taking me to task. How do you justify keeping women from being pastors in today's world? Uh, anonymous, the, the pulpits in the churches of Jesus Christ don't belong to me. They belong to God. The church is his. He's the authority in the church. That means he makes the rules. Now, God is the ancient of days. God's old-fashioned because he's old. And God, when he makes rules, the rules are perfect, and they don't need to be revised. So when Jesus says, I do not, and he says it through the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, the context of this passage is orderly worship. This is how the church is to function. Paul says to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the church. Now, that is as clear anonymous as it can be. And if you were to go to a church where you supported a woman pastor, I would say to you, based on what the Bible says, not not what the contemporary world says, not what our emotions tell us, not what's popular, but, but based on what the Bible says so clearly, how do you justify allowing women or embracing women to be pastors in today's world? See, part of the problem is that the church has become too worldly. And this is just one example. Um, you know, we just think, well, you know, uh, in the Lord there's no male or female. There isn't, but, but there are different roles assigned. God doesn't say the man is more spiritual, the man is more qualified. He just says, it's my church, and in my church, the leadership is going to be male. And the women who usurp the authority of a pastor in a church are just that. They are usurpers of that authority, and they're the ones who are missing out, and the church that they're pastoring is missing out. Now, I'm not suggesting they're not saved. I'm not suggesting that God isn't at work. But what I'm saying is that they're all settling for way less than God wants for them. So, again, we follow the rules. We follow the rules. That's what Christians do. We have to agree with our Christ. When he says that women cannot be pastors, it doesn't matter what anybody else in the world says. It doesn't matter how they twist Scripture. The only thing that matters is we surrender to our Lord, Jesus Christ, whose church this is. And he says that leadership is male. So anonymous, don't have to justify it at all. All we have to do is be obedient. If you're not obedient or if your opinions differ from that which is communicated to us in the Word, then you've got some real praying to do, some repenting to do. We have to agree with Jesus. Joe says, uh, Pastor, what exactly is the day of the Lord? Uh, I'm going to talk about this a lot tonight, Joe, in the book of Joel. We're, we're closing out chapter 2 here. And um, um, the, the day of the Lord always refers to the day of God's wrath being poured out. Now, there, there are different segments of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, Jesus in Revelation chapter 19 is coming back. That's sort of the culmination of the day of the Lord. Um, that's when the wrath of God is going to be uh, poured out against the Christ-rejecting world. Uh, but the day of the Lord also refers more in a more uh, in a broader sense. The day of the Lord refers to um, what we call the Great Tribulation, um, the time when 
um, God has given the world over to itself, and the the um, judgments, the seal judgments, the bold judgments, um, and the vile judgments. Um, or, I'm sorry, the trumpet judgments um, and, and the bold judgments or the vile judgments. Um, uh, when they're poured out on the world. It's just God punishing a world that's rejected Jesus Christ. And we know, Joe, that happens during the Great Tribulation. The last seven years of history, it will be immediately preceded by the rapture of the church because we're not appointed under wrath. We're appointed unto salvation. And uh, before the wrath of God is poured out on this Christ-rejecting world, Christians are going to be removed from the earth. Thank you for the question and the setup for tonight's Bible study, Joe. Here's a question from Jack. He says, must I be ordained to be a pastor um, or can I just start teaching the Bible? Um, Jack, you have to be called. This is the most important thing. There are a lot of people uh, attending pulpits in this um, in these last days who aren't really called by God to do it. And you can tell. You know, I'm not saying they don't love the Lord, but you can just tell they're not gifted. They're not called to be a pastor. Um, so so you, you have to be called by God. If you're called by God to be that pastor, then other people ought then to acknowledge that calling. That's why you need to be a part of a church. Now, Jack, if you're not part of a church and, and you, 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 you word this question like you're sort of a a lone ranger. Um, you know, I have to do things this way or that way. Why can't I just do this? If that's what you intended in, in that question, um, then you're not called to be a pastor. You're certainly not qualified to be a pastor. In order to do that, you need to obey the Lord. It means you need to be a part of a healthy, well-balanced, Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church. You can't do things on your own. You can't do things your way. You see, a pastor needs to be obedient. Now, I realize there's a bunch of people out there who call themselves pastors who aren't obedient. But I'm talking about you and your relationship with the Lord and his calling. Remember, I said at the beginning of this program that you are, uh, if you're called to be a pastor, you are intended by God to be his gift to a church. So you need to be raised up. You need to have other people acknowledge your gift. Start out teaching uh, children's ministry in your church. Start out teaching um, um, small Bible studies, whatever it is. But um, you, you need to be a part of a healthy, well-balanced church because if not, then you're defying um, the Lord's method of reaching his people. It's It's just that simple. So... You, you need to be ordained to be a pastor. Uh, I think I have 10 pastors on staff here. And when we, I'm being told I have 11, I have 11 pastors, uh, before any of them were ordained to be a pastor, uh, we, we saw clear evidence of their calling and their gifting over a long period of time. So it's very important that you need to be ordained. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean you've got to go to Bible college or a seminary. Um, I went to a Bible college, but I know people that didn't. I know some pastors who are so gifted, they've been called by God, and they're pastoring churches of thousands and thousands of people um, who um, who just got saved and, and started serving the Lord, and, and pretty soon they started uh, teaching Bible. Greg Laurie, who was uh, the, the, one of the key figures in the movie The Jesus Revolution, he was 19 years old when he started teaching the Bible. In Riverside, he's been a pastor for like a thousand years now. So, um, yeah, you can start teaching the Bible, but you need to be under the cover of another church, another pastor. You need to learn. You need to be patient. Um, impatience is certainly not a, a a good characteristic for somebody who God expects to be patient with the people He loves. You know, Jack. One of the things in I went to Bible college and immediately came to San Antonio and started the church here. Um, and it was slow. God was teaching us so much, and he was knitting Paula's heart and mine together uh, in the ministry that he's called us uh, to. And and without those first couple of years, at least here in San Antonio, 
we never would have survived. God taught us to depend on him. God taught me how to teach the Bible. God taught me and Paul how to walk together. How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? So you cannot be impatient. Just serve somebody else. Go to a church. Say, look, here I am. I think I'm called to be a pastor, but now I'm called to do whatever you need me to do and be available. But you've got to be invested in the work that you're called to. You've got to be invested in the people that God has called you to to pastor. And you can't do that if you're just thinking about yourself. You know, very often, and we're running out of time here, so I don't want to go to another question, but very often um, people just think of a pastor, well, he's the one who talks and people listen to him and he gets the attention and that's what I want. That's not a pastor's heart. A true pastor's heart, Jack, is somebody who doesn't want the attention at all. When I get attention after I do a Bible study, uh, it's it's really embarrassing to me. So it's just, I'm doing my job. My job is to love the people that God has called me to love. My job is to teach the Word of God, to have absolute confidence in the Word. And then God can use you. Anything short of that, Jack, and your calling to be a pastor is going to be in real jeopardy. Thank you very much for the question, Jackie. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks for tuning in and for your calls. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Remember, Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. Tonight here at Calvary Chapel, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, a very New Testament portion of scripture in the Old Testament. Hey, thanks for tuning in. I'll be back tomorrow with Paula, Lord willing, on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.